Welcome back to Public Problems with Justin Bullock. I'm your host, Justin Bullock. Uh, it's good to be with you again. Uh, today is June 28th, 2021. Uh, recording the episode on the day of, but not live, as it were. Um, so a couple quick updates. Uh, this episode has going, is going to come in three additional parts. I'm going to get a quick two quick readings. It's been some time since I've done uh, some readings, so I'm working that into today. And then I have my first conversation <clears throat> with a guest today on the channel. And this is being brought to you uh, from two days past. So we recorded this on Friday uh, and it's with Greg Gauss, uh, who I've done a lot of work with on Bush School Uncorked. And it was actually one of my earliest guests on the Public Problems podcast uh, several years ago now. And uh, we have a really uh, nice conversation that we're gonna con continue somewhat regularly under the broad title of World Conversations. And for this first conversation, which lasts about 30 minutes, and it'll be at the, uh, at the end of the episode today, we discuss the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, this one is, uh, is a current world issue um, that uh, the US is dealing with at Afghanistan, but a lot of the, uh, with repercussions for a lot of the world. Um, so I'm looking forward to bring that conversation with you uh, our hearts are out to our friends in Afghanistan um, as there are some, some serious challenges going on right now. Um, so with that in mind, um, I hope that you're enjoying following along. If you haven't yet, uh, follow us on the Facebook fan page, subscribe on YouTube, uh, or support us on Patreon. And I also have a personal website, justinbullock.org, where you can find out more information about the things I'm doing there as well. All right, it's a lot of front matter for today. All right, so I wanna jump into two readings that I wanna do for you today. They're both uh, relatively brief and you will have seen them before if you've been following along on the fan page. The first thing today that I wanna briefly read to you is a passage from the What's What book with inside the book, The Island, by Aldous Huxley. The Island was Aldous Huxley's uh, last novel, I believe. And within the novel, he uses a novel within the novel, not really a novel, it's a collection of things that a society is trying to remember that he thinks is important. So I'm gonna read a, a brief passage from What's What that shows up within the book, The Island. Patriotism is not enough, but neither is anything else. Science is not enough. Religion is not enough. Art is not enough. Politics and economics are not enough. Nor is love, nor is duty, nor is action, however disinterested, nor however sublime is contemplation. Nothing short of everything will do. And that's from What's What? within the book, The Island, written by Aldous Huxley. And so there's um, a few things there for you to think on and reflect on, but Huxley, I think, is trying to make the argument of how important it is to focus on the totality of things and not just uh, be lost in the details of one specific way of knowing, one specific way of doing things, but instead trying to find ways to embrace all of those ways and trying to develop understanding and knowing around all of these ways of knowing. 
All right. So that is also shared in the fan page, uh, along with uh, some pictures that I took out uh, on a morning walk here recently that I think capture um, what this saying from what's what made me think of. Um, and, uh, and it builds also off of the inanimate is alive conversation that we've had in previous weeks. Okay. So the second thing that I wanna share with you today is a brief poem. And this poem is by Walt Whitman and it was shared to me recently um, as uh, just like some of the previous poetry that I shared earlier in the year. Um, this one was brought to me by an old friend and an old teacher. Um, and we meet sometimes to discuss books and to discuss poems. And I was telling him about my experience learning about different ways of knowing to, to go back to the, uh, to the reference from what's what, and how a lot of my, a lot of the ways of knowing that I have been uh, valuing as an adult and as an academic are symbolic representations of things, are uh, the, the, for, the formulas, the, the descriptions, the numbers and the words as they represent different kind of phenomenon. And that one of the things that spending time in literature and spending time reading things like uh, Olaf Stapleton's work, C.S. Lewis as one that's been influential to me lately and Aldous Huxley's work um, and some of the just great spiritual and religious traditions is this idea that these different ways of knowing from either symbols, so words and numbers can be different than the direct experience of things. And when we were having this discussion together, um, my friend thought of this poem and shared it with me. And I thought it does a nice job of capturing um, this tension between the symbols of things and the things themselves. So again, this is Walt Whitman and it's when I heard the learned astronomer. When I heard the learned astronomer, when I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs, the figures were ranged in columns before me, when I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide and measure them, when I sitting heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became, tired and sick, till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself in the mystical moist night air and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. Let me read it again. When I heard the learned astronomer, when the proofs the figures were ranged in columns before me. When I was shown the charts and diagrams to add, divide and measure them. When I sitting heard the astronomer where he lectured with much applause in the lecture room, how soon unaccountable I became, tired and sick. Till rising and gliding out, I wandered off by myself 
in the mystical moist night air and from time to time looked up in perfect silence at the stars. That's Walt Whitman when I heard the learned astronomer. So here I think Whitman is helping make the point or provide some beautiful poetry around this idea that learning about things, learning the proofs, learning the math behind physics, learning the concepts, learning the rules, provide one way of understanding our relationship to the cosmos, our relationship to the stars, our relationship with the things in uh, our physical environments. But there's only so much to that. There's something um, that also comes an, an additional way of knowing by directly experiencing the thing that's being studied, which is viewing the stars on a calm, cool night. All right. So those are the two um, readings I wanted to share with you. Now let me introduce the conversation that's coming. Um, I've decided to start having conversations with others as something that uh, we'll do regularly on the channel here. And the uh, first one is uh, with my friend Gregory Gallus. We have done a number of uh, conversations uh, for quite some time uh, on Bush School and Court uh, and on the Public Problems uh, podcast. And so it felt appropriate to have him uh, come join me for the first conversation. Uh, when we were talking about it, we decided to uh, title these conversations World Conversations. Greg is an international affairs expert. I'm interested in issues that broadly affect uh, the world. And so we're gonna pick some topics and occasionally have about a 30 minute conversation that we share with you. Um, and this topic, this, uh, this week, we look at the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, this is personal for uh, lots of uh, individuals living uh, within Afghanistan right now who are struggling to, uh, to make ends meet and get by. Uh, Greg and I also have uh, personal friends um, that are living on the ground in Afghanistan that are facing the consequences of the political and economic environment in Afghanistan um, and the U.S.'s uh, military withdrawal. And so we talk about what's going on, uh, how we got here in this particular situation, and what Greg and I see as some of the range of potential outcomes and consequences for the current U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and uh, talk through those. So uh, taking a swing at a different uh, type of episode today with a uh, uh, couple variety of things to bring to you. So I hope you enjoyed the readings. And with that, I'll turn, turn it over to the conversation that Greg and I had on Friday about the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. Thanks for following along. Welcome to, oh, it's not Bush School and Cork anymore, Greg. I almost did no. it. Nope. No, that was that was close. That was close. We can't and we can't even we can't even call it, you know, Justin and Greg on court. No, mm -mm. no, it's a whole new big world out here in the YouTube land. Um, and it's uh, kind of exciting. And welcome everyone. Uh, this is Greg Gauls, who probably most of you turning into this video, tuning into it early on, will remember uh, Greg from our time together at Bush School and Court, which is where the early uh, references are, but this is our, Greg, you're my first guest on my YouTube channel. Um, All right. Yeah, so it makes you a uh, something. 
first time or something. I guess that means that, you know, when you get old and you're about to retire, I'm going to have to come back and be the, be your last guest. Be the right? last one. Isn't that what, it wasn't that the deal with Conan O'Brien when he yeah. did his last show yesterday? That's right, yeah. <laughs> you can be the first and the last. But, but yeah. even before we did Bush School and Corp, yeah. I remember you came over to the house and we did a, a public problems on the Middle East. You know, that is very true. And uh, this is just the latest evolution of the public problems platform now in video rather than just on audio. But it is true, Greg, I believe you were the second person I ever had on the public problems podcast uh, right after my uh, good friend as well, David Bradford. Um, and so I think it's just, uh, and then after all of our time to Bush School, um, Bush School and Cork together, I think it's perfectly appropriate that you're my first guest. And um, so thanks for making the time. And there I'll have done probably it. a little bit of a um, introduction, but we, uh, Greg and I were debating what to call this since we uh, weren't uncorked, uncorked anymore. And I told him I'd already done one of my whiteboards advertising uh, the chatting with other people as conversations broadly. And part of this is going to be with Greg, but we also have some I have some conversations lined up with uh, artists and some some other uh, folks that are uh, going to look at some issues with us as well that we've talked to in the past on the public problems platform. Some folks that went to, with me to Matamoros to see the um, refugee camp in uh, in Mexico. We're going to revisit that as a, a little time out from that now. But what Greg and I decided is uh, that what we'd like to talk about, what I'd like to talk about with Greg is maybe once a month. Uh, come and highlight some uh, global affairs, some issue going on in the world that we think is of importance that maybe we know something about um, and that we want to bring your attention to and tell you a little bit about. And the clever name that Greg, Greg, I'm going to give you credit, that Greg came up with was World Conversations, which I like. So today is World Conversations on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And way, the way we're going to pull this together today is I have six questions lined out for us today. I'm gonna to tell you at the beginning what they're going to be. And Greg and I are gonna do our best to stick to about five minutes of each question. So I don't know that we can do that, but we're gonna give it a swing. Okay, Greg? It's hard. <laughs> there so is, the there is, before we start though, there is a big difference between Bush School on Cork and um, and, and I just heard it. conversations and that we can we can actually have a drink while we're talking as opposed to Bush School Uncorked, where I promised the dean we would not drink while we were podcasting. So we drank before and we drank after. Which we did a good job of following those rules, except mm -hmm. for our final episode. And That's right, our final episode. Even we then we behaved. We only had a couple sips. Um, we, had a, we had a toast kind of thing. But this is, my, this is my way of getting the truth out of Greg in each episode. Um, so we're going to be cheersing throughout and uh, we'll get his un, uh, unvarnished uh, opinion on these things. In vino veritas. And given our topic today, I'm going to need wine throughout because this is uh, this one's hard for me to talk through uh, because this one directly affects uh, close friends of mine. Um, so the right. wine is going to be my own crutch today. Okay, so our six questions. One, I'm going to say, I'm gonna tell us about what's going on. Why are we talking about this today? Why are we making it our first conversations and our first world conversation? And second, Greg is going to tell us a little bit the history about how did we get here. He's an international affairs scholar, 
focused in general on the Middle East, really close to right here where Afghanistan is, and he's going to give us a little bit of a five-minute overview of how we got here. And then for the final four questions, it's going to be speculation from Greg and I. We're going to first uh, tell you what we think the feasibly worst outcome is for this current situation. Then we'll talk about what we think is feasibly the best outcome, and then what we think is the most likely outcome. The idea is to give you a range of things that you might anticipate for what's currently happening uh, with US withdrawal in Afghanistan and how it's going to affect the region and the US. And then we're gonna end with what would we do if we could? So if Greg was made king of the world, ah, see, look at our ties to the title in episode one. If, if each of us was king of the world or leader of the world, uh, what would we suggest be done? Um, and so that's what we're going to work through. Are you, are you okay with that uh, strategy, Greg? All good. All right. So um, I would like to talk about today is what's going on with the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the reason this has been on my mind, Greg, is... As you know, we have several former students um, who are from Afghanistan. One of the uh, great things about working at the Bush School was that we attracted Fulbright students from all over the world. And in particular, a, uh, about a, uh, a yearly one or two students from um, Afghanistan that would come to the Bush School. And since then, um, I have continued to work with two of these students. Um, they're working on a book project with me, part of the AI governance handbook that we're working on. Um, and so we meet regularly. And last week, I had a conversation with these two, uh, two Afghans and friends of mine. And what I didn't know was that the situation was deteriorating quickly. And by quickly, what I learned is that the Taliban um, has taken over a number of uh, provinces. Um, I think the total account now is uh, over 80 out of the 440 or 50 so that there are, uh, with a lot of those being gained in the, in the, in the, in the past week or two. Um, and if you look in the news, today is June 25th, uh, 2021, you would, you would have found a lot of stories uh, talking about how the pace in which the Taliban is um, taking over provinces is concerning to everyone. It's concerning to the US military. Um, today, actually, the Secretary of State uh, Blinken was trying to um, highlight that uh, that the Taliban, even if following the agreement in the in detail by not taking over any uh, provincial capitals or uh, places where there were American troops, that they were violating the spirit of the deal by uh, this offense offensive that uh, the Taliban had been engaged in. Uh, you see stories about uh, U.S. generals. Uh, really worried um, about getting interpreters and those that have been sympathetic to uh, helping American soldiers out of the country. Um, and then you hear and come across stories kind of equating to this, equating this to the withdrawal from uh, Vietnam, which uh, I think maybe Greg might mention uh, as, a, as a scary uh, potential parallel to part of what's going on here. So I didn't know about this. And uh, both of my friends are active uh, in the movement, so much so that I don't feel comfortable sharing their names today as part of, uh, as part of the cast, um, as part of the show. And they all also asked me uh, to do as such in the, in the short term. And 
so I had this really bizarre feeling. We talk on Tuesdays, Greg, and um, I'm sitting on my back porch uh, with my Boston Terrier and uh, often smoking weed and uh, having some coffee. And uh, I can do that. I'm in Washington State now, as it turns out. And um, and yeah, I have this. I was I was actually more disturbed about the dog. Okay, <laughs> of course you were. Oh yeah, Quimmers uh, might make an appearance. Uh, it's to be determined. Just so you can see our mascot that I know that you uh, miss dearly. And uh, so I have these bizarre moments actually, where I'm here in the the rich suburbs of Seattle with my dog and coffee and weed, and I'm riding. Uh, with these two Afghan friends of mine. And one of them is trying to get a visa right now to get out for their studies in a PhD program in the US uh, and worried about getting their family out and um, as an outspoken atheist. And so as uh, feels targeted, uh, the other is a, um, is a, is a female who um, given her voice in the movement um, doesn't feel comfortable leaving and also isn't able to uh, uh, help get their family out. The only way they could get out would be without their family. And um, it's this surrealism thing that I don't really, like it, it's happening to my friends. I see it in the news and yet there's not really anything I can do to help them. And it actually prompted me immediately calling you or texting you while I was on the call with them and say, I have to do something. We have to at least do what we can to draw attention to it on the international stage, as much as the you know couple dozen people that are watching the YouTube channel and in our circles, because it seems to me that we could be at a tipping point for our friends in, uh, in Afghanistan. And this is something that our former dean, um, uh, kind of was how I first came to know some of the stuff going on in Afghanistan was through conversations with you um, and with Ryan. And you know, this has been one of the concerns about uh, a withdrawal from Afghanistan is setting up a situation where basically the Taliban just uh, uh, kind of builds at the gate, like in a zombies movie, you know, where they're all kind of building, 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 and the last train, the last planes are about to get off on the top of the roof and waiting on the door, you know, the walls to fall in, and. Um, so that's how I feel like where we are. It looks like the U.S. is not going to budge on withdrawal, uh, although there was some talk around it, and Blinken is trying to signal otherwise. We'll know more today, probably by the time we finish recording Biden's meeting with the current president and uh, one of the current president's political foes, uh, Abdullah Abdullah. Um, and um, so there'll be more coming down in the next couple of days. And I think I kept that to about five minutes, but... Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you know about how we got here? Yeah, good on you. Five minutes. I'm going to take my watch off. <laughs> I still wear one and I'm just going to put it here and I'm going to try to keep an eye on it to keep me at five minutes. All right. I'll start yelling at you if you get to seven. Yeah. A lot of people uh, start telling the story about America and Afghanistan at 9-11, but I think we got to go back before that, right? We have to go back to the Cold War. And in 1979, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan. So this is the first time that Soviet troops have been deployed outside of what, you know, most Americans would consider their sphere of influence in Eastern Europe, right? In the Warsaw Pact countries, they sent in troops to put down rebellions in East Germany and Poland and Hungary and Czechoslovakia, right? But in 1979, they go into Afghanistan uh, 
to protect a communist government that had come to power through a, a military coup. And uh, that begins uh, uh, a decade long process whereby the Soviet Union tries to stand up a government in Afghanistan and the United States supported by Pakistan on the border and Saudi Arabia with a lot of money attempts to support the, the jihad, right? The holy war against the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. This was a time when Ronald Reagan thought jihad was a great idea. He called the leaders of the Afghan resistance to the Soviets who called themselves Mujahideen, people who fight jihad. He called them like the founding fathers of the United States, all right? Uh, this was uh, considered a great success because we really bled the Soviet Union, this alliance of, of Pakistan, the United States, Saudi Arabia, Afghans fighting against the Soviet occupation of their country and international Muslim fighters who went to Afghanistan to fight, Osama bin Laden being probably the most famous of them. And the, and the Soviet Union left Afghanistan, I believe in 1989, you know, after 10 years of trying to prop up a government where they just said, you know, this is not, the game is not worth the candle. We've spent too much money and too many lives and too much blood. And uh, two years after that, of course, the Soviet Union itself collapsed. So that was the end of the Cold War and the Afghanistan strategy of bleeding the Soviet Union was considered a great success. But of course, if you connect the dots from 9-11 backwards, that's the beginning of the dynamic that leads to the attack on the United States in 2001. Because the, uh, the Islamist fighters who defeated the Soviet Union felt that they could also defeat the other superpower, the United States, which uh, Osama bin Laden felt was uh, interfering in the affairs all over the Muslim world. Uh, the Taliban, the, the very conservative Sunni Islamist group party that took over in Afghanistan gave bin Laden safe haven. And it was from Afghanistan that he plotted the 9-11 attack. That's why in, in 2001, the United States invaded Afghanistan, threw the Taliban out of power and attempted to construct its own government. Now, this is strangely similar to what the Soviet Union tried to do. Mm -hmm. uh, we stayed for 20 years, the Soviet Union stayed for 10. Uh, but I think the same dynamic kind of took hold. Uh, one can go further back in Afghan history, and I'm no expert on Afghan history, but uh, one can go further back in Afghan history in Afghanistan, a very mountainous country, landlocked, has frustrated the, uh, the, the plans of imperial powers since Alexander the Great. And so uh, it's not unusual, you know, some, pe some people who study Afghanistan call it the graveyard of empire. Uh, it, it, it was the graveyard of the Soviet Union's empire. I don't think it will be the graveyard of America's uh, very 20, late 20th, early 21st century empire, but it, it, it wore us out. And so the question now is, uh, do we leave? And I think you're absolutely right. I think we are leaving. 
I think that the uh, that uh, President Biden is committed to that. I think that we're already in train on getting stuff out that we want out. The people that we want out, that's a different story, but it appears that we're beginning to think about that. Uh, the argument really is, should we maintain a kind of small military force there to keep the Taliban out of Kabul for, for uh, counterterrorism purposes? And, uh, or do we just uh, say, you know, we failed and uh, it's time to go. And if the Taliban takes over, we have the means to deter them from replicating what they did in the late 90s, giving uh, you know, safe haven to Osama bin Laden and, and, and Al-Qaeda, that we, that, that we now have credibility. We can tell them, hey, we came in and kicked your ass once. If you do that again, we're gonna come in and kick your ass again. So if you wanna have a Salafi, very conservative Sunni regime in Afghanistan, that's your business. But if you bring in groups that want to attack us and have a, 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 a more global reach, then we're gonna come in and do that to you again. So that's kind of the debate. And I think I hit seven minutes, maybe not five. Yeah, yeah, I think seven, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I was still lost in, uh, in the background. So you definitely didn't, uh, you definitely didn't put the student to, uh, to nap as I would do mine sometimes. Um, I, so I, I mean, you're not, you're not a good teacher unless you put some of this. <laughs> okay, I think that sounds right. One piece of this that I wanna ask you about before I'll, I'll do the uh, honors of painting the grim picture first so that um, so that I can set the stage. But one of the things that I think we should highlight from the current picture that I didn't, that uh, was actually requested of me to highlight. And then I come across it in the uh, article, which I thought was an important point, um, which is as part of the agreement, it seems like that the Taliban agreed to distance itself from Al Qaeda, um, which it has not done uh, in kind of a, um a uh, violation of that what's your what's your sense of of that i don't know the details but i haven't seen anything that leads me to think that the taliban has uh renewed what was a very organic alliance with al-qaeda by the end of the 1990s got it all right that was the one other piece that i was just not sure um, that seemed like a piece that the Taliban had agreed to that, that maybe they weren't following through on. Um, but I don't think there's any question what the uh, actual underlying approach um, that they're no. accomplishing is. No. Uh, it doesn't no. change the actual kind of what seems like the strategy. They're going, they're going for Kabul and uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, uh, we're going to do uh, what's the, on the, way I'm kind of thinking about this, just so the audience knows, is what's in kind of the bottom 15% of like what would be the worst kind of 15% set of outcomes that I think is possible based on my read. And then what, uh, that's what we'll, Greg and I will both do that. Then we'll talk about what seems like the shining potential possibilities and then uh, our actual kind of concerns or uh, optimism about what we actually think will happen. But before you start that, you've got to ask your, I mean, you've got to, 
we got to put cards on the table. Worse for whom? Mm. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, worse for you, worse for whom, for whom is a good question. I was thinking about it in terms of uh, kind of death, violence, and uh, just general destruction. Like, so just generally bad for like, what's the, uh, how bad could it be for really, I was thinking about people on the ground was what I had in mind as like, what's the worst outcome for the people in Afghanistan was where I was thinking about coming at it from. Still, that's, that's a hard one, right? Because yeah. Yeah. There, there, there could be people in Afghanistan who say, I would rather have an ongoing civil war than be ruled by the Taliban who are going to make my life miserable and might kill me. Yeah, I, I, uh, I agree. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, so let me, let me tell you what, I, what I'm going to think of as what I think of as the worst case scenario, which is kind of in line with that. And as putting my cards on the table, I'll say my criteria is what I think leads to the most immediate short-term death and destruction, I guess, as in the short term, what would cause the most of that. And it seems like, I mean, you, you, you hit it, hit the nail on the head with, with uh, what you presented, but I mean, it seems like a civil war is on the table and civil wars are bloody and bad for societies and uh, lead to kind of a breakdown of social order, I think. And so it seems like what's on the table is a complete American withdrawal um, within a few months. I mean, this seems to be the, uh, the guests by American intelligence, at least to some degree, but within a few months, Kabul could be overrun by Taliban forces. Uh, that government, the uh, Afghan government is de disempowered. The Taliban resumes um, some sort of central control over the state and puts in really repressive and oppressive systems of governance that kind of squash things like um, uh, women's rights and education and uh, basic uh, access to the Western liberal world, uh, which I would uh, consider as good. I stand by that <laughs> comparatively um, and kind of smother the, the pieces of enlightenment or the pieces of progress towards uh, democracy and women's rights and opportunity um, seems like it's certainly on the on the and the bottom worst outcome and it could be in that area I think a, a fairly a violent and uh, I don't think it's really maybe in their incentives to be but you could certainly imagine in that bottom tier um, kind of uh, killing dissidents um, in gruesome ways and in ways to kind of uh, exert fear and control. Um, so that's what I see, complete withdrawal from the US that leads to a loss of power by the current government in favor of the Taliban. The Taliban is not in any important way reformed and it kind of institutes its conservative version of, of, of Sunni Islam. So I'm not sure from what you said what you actually think the worst case scenario is. Mm. Because you started out saying civil war is the worst case scenario. And then you said Taliban control is the worst case scenario. Those are two different things, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Taliban control means that there's not much fighting. I mean, yeah, they control it, right? They, and, you know, they put your friends in jail or they kill them. Yeah. But there's not large scale fighting. There's not 
shelling of civilian areas. There's not, you know, gun, gun battles in the streets. But there is a very conservative, very uh, patriarchal system of government instituted. Yeah, so what's the worst? So, so yeah. you tell me, what's your worst case scenario? Yeah, yeah. I see where you were going with the question earlier about which one was actually worse. Um, yeah. One seems worse in the short term and one seems longer, worse in the long run. Um, Civil War, I think. Man, yeah, golly, way to, way to make me force between locked in oppressive religious regime or bloody civil war. Uh, well done. Uh, I should have took more international affairs classes. I'm going to say that, uh, that a locked in system where the Taliban spreads terror is the worst kind of uh, intermediate outcome. Um, and if they do that via fighting a civil war and then winning, that is the worst outcome. <laughs> okay. A bloodless revolution or a semi-bloodless revolution is, is better, but I guess the worst outcome so, is a- So what you're saying is don't fight them if they're going to win. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what that sounds like, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, mm. yeah, okay. So if you read your Thomas Hobbes, Mm -hmm. right you would say civil war is the absolute worst situation you can be in much better to have order right mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about getting killed when you leave your house and you accept whatever it takes to establish that order even if it's a taliban regime but if you have a different view of the human condition, you maybe say it's worth fighting this regime, this, uh, this, this putative regime, this, this potential regime that's trying to reestablish itself because you feel that uh, life under that regime uh, would be worse than the risks to your own life and limb of, of fighting them. I, it's yeah it's no, a I tough really, i haven't really gotten there um and uh yeah because my my sense definitely runs with like you you fight and try to win um and uh but also that a that a civil war is quite uh it's quite bloody and ugly which seems like a a really worse outcome so i took up more than my two and a half minutes what do you think is the uh is the worst outcome For whom? <laughs> For the United States, the worst outcome would be a Taliban regime that becomes a safe haven for every Salafi jihadist organization in the world that wants to attack the United States. Uh, for our friends, our former students, the worst possible outcome is a Taliban regime. I mean, they were educated here to try to build a quasi-liberal state. Mm -hmm. And that, that project, the Taliban is not signed on for that project. They have yeah. another project. They have a different idea. They about... have a different idea of what governance should look like. 
You know what's really interesting about that, Greg? So, but, the- but for the average Afghan, I got to say the Taliban is probably better than civil war because they're probably basically okay with most of the patriarchal, repressive, whatever you want to call them, cultural norms that they will enforce claiming that they are Islamic law. Yeah, that fits. Yeah, I I see that play out in the U.S. just under a different religion. Um, So yeah, it doesn't, uh, even with lots of education and lots of wealth, um, you get the same kind of groups. Um, All right. Okay. So I wanted to get this out of the way first because uh, I knew I was going to have a hard time with it and we were pointing out all the negatives. So what I'll let you now go first to paint us a rosy picture of as the U.S. withdraws, what is a feasible set of things that could happen that leads to a really positive outcome? And let's say for for the U.S. and for our friends, if there was a positive outcome as part of withdrawal, how could it play out? So I think that that would, I think this is low probability, Justin, but uh, the current Afghan government surprises us with its fighting capacity. It, it, it stymies the Taliban offensive as it gets closer to Kabul. And what you basically get is a tacit truce in which people we like govern Kabul and maybe some of the other major cities and the Taliban controls a lot of the rural areas and that having demonstrated that it has some fighting capability, the Afghan government then gets more support from the United States, from uh, European countries maybe, Uh, the Pakistanis who are undoubtedly behind and supporting the Taliban get warned off maybe in stronger terms by Western powers. Uh, The Indians come in to support the current Afghan government because they don't like the Pakistani support for the Taliban. And and you you get a patchwork Afghanistan, some controlled by the Taliban, some controlled by the government, but the major cities basically under the control of non-Taliban forces. Yep. I think, I think that that's, that's the best one can hope for. <laughs> yeah, well, I, uh, that, seems, that seems about right. I was, I was thinking that maybe there's, um, maybe there's another general coalition that involves Europe partnering with a broader share of kind of security forces in partnership with the U.S., some regional allies pitch in and you're able to maintain security in the cities and um, encourage um, uh, a like a stranglehold of resources on the Taliban. Um, So yeah, I think that's about as positive as you can hope for at this point in time. Yeah. Um, Okay, now, what do you think is going to happen, Greg? 
Give me a prediction. Saigon, 1975. Yeah. Uh, all things seem to point in that direction. Um, yeah, the, you know, collapse is not a linear process. It's an exponential process. Uh, we could be surprised, you know, maybe the fighting spirit of the of the Afghan security forces is uh, greater than we think from the outside, but um, as the United States leaves and as the Taliban gets closer, more and more people with guns uh, are going to say, it, it makes no use fighting this fight. We either join the Taliban and get what we can, or we go home. Take off our uniform, we go home, hope for the best. Yeah. I think that's the most likely outcome. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's three months, maybe it's six months. Man, it feels really, feels like, it's, it feels really surreal after it's been such a long battle. We didn't, we didn't build a, we didn't build an Afghan government that could stand on its own. Yeah. And, the, and the fact that the former yeah. president of Afghanistan, Mr. Karzai, who we put in power originally, is blaming us for all of this is a pretty good indication that we didn't build an Afghan government that could stand on its own. Yeah, I don't think I have a project, pro projection that's any, uh, any different. I mean, it seems like... It, <laughs> Yeah, I have this feeling like uh, the days leading up to the um, the insurrection at the Capitol, uh, where it's like all the all the pieces are there. You can kind of can kind of see how they might how they might do one of these numbers. You know, see them getting closer. You can see it coming. And um, the other time I had this feeling was watching. I remember being I was in London actually as the outbreak was happening in China, and uh, I was sitting with a buddy. You know, you said nonlinear processes. It made me think of that. We were looking at all the um, all the uh, um, reports of the numbers, and they were doing this number. You know, they were not. Uh, they were not doing this number. When were you in London? February. I was in London in February. Yeah, we just missed one another. I think. Uh, why I think didn't we? Why, why didn't we see each other? Yeah, I think I yeah, know it would have been we, we uh, it would have been great, but I think I think we talked about it and I think we were like just passing one another um, at the time. Uh, yeah, so I uh, I was I, I spent some time today kind of in the actual articles and taking it in and kind of figuring out the players and what the situation was and kind of updating my own knowledge and um, yeah, it, it definitely uh, has the sense and. Uh, it, what you were saying reminded me a little bit of this this dialogue between these two these two people I know these two Afghans, and one of them uh, that's playing a more activist role, saying you know we're we're hopeful that the the that the European counterparts will play a larger role. We're hopeful we can convince the Americans. We're hopeful that the Taliban will reform a little bit. And the other the other yeah exactly I know exactly, and the other friend tells uh, tells a story about what converted him away from. Islam uh, being watching a stoning and it was when kind of as um, the Taliban was playing a large control then and it turned him away from religion and his comment in our in our conversations has always have been you're you're kidding yourself the 
the, the Taliban has a has a has a view about the world that is that is literally like they'd rather die than live in this world if it meant they're dying for the holy cause. That's not a that's not something that just kind of reforms and <laughs> doesn't 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 play out that way. And then there was always this kind of from my other friend and them going, yeah, but we're just hoping for the best, you know, <laughs> we're just hoping for the best. Um, so from that perspective, let's say that you and I are uh, uh, representative uh, kings of the world and, um, and we have uh, lots of resources from the modern world that we can move around. And someone's given us access to broad access resources. The world's pulled their resources together and we have kind of the resources that it needs um, collectively because all the rich countries figured out that if you wanted to end war, you really had to do real investment into developing countries, not just come in and spread violence. So what would we do if we could? I think I've put the spotlight on you a couple of times. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Sure. No, no, I'll go first because I'm going to have a very different answer than you. Yep. Uh, the, the problem in Afghanistan is we didn't spread enough violence. Mm. Uh, we had to go kill all the Taliban if what we wanted to do was prevent a Taliban resurgence. And we didn't do that. So if, what, if, if our goal is to protect our friends in Afghanistan, send 200 million troops and kill all the Taliban. Kill them. I, I, I don't know how else to put that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because uh, you said we have all the resources in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now you were thinking, of course, nice resources. Yeah, of course I was. <laughs> <laughs> But what you said before about, you know, you don't reform people who want to be martyrs in their cause. Uh, you, would, you, would have to, you would have to send in a, a, an enormous force and kill all the Taliban and, and be so brutal about it that anybody who thought the Taliban had the right idea would say, okay, we can't, we can't do that. All right. So... We're not doing that. So with all the resources in the world, I take all our friends out. <laughs> take all our friends out, set them up. Where do they want to go? They want to go to Australia. They want to come to the US. We've got plenty of places that could use people who are willing to work hard and live in a liberal society and you know, maybe not live in the main cities, but live in some small towns and help them revive their economy, work hard. I, I, I you know, how many, how, how many, 100,000, 180,000, take them all. Yeah. That's what I would do. Take them all. Yeah. And this, this comes back to my view of America, which is that immigration has made this country what it is and, you know, people who, who want to live in the kind of society that we have, come on in. Yep. So I would, I would put them all in planes and bring them to America and give them an, give them a, I'd give them citizenship the minute they got off the plane. <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, and uh, yeah, I, so 
I was I was thinking about so my answer as I kind of uh, tipped my hand to was finding ways to invest resources, kind of liberal education resources and infrastructure resources. And uh, what do you think we've been doing for 20? Yeah, I know. Come on. I know. <laughs> um, yeah, not enough of that and not enough violence. We, we, huh. we, we kind of hit, the, hit the, the unsweet spot on both of those. Yeah. <laughs> But, but, but what I was going to say, is, so one, it's why I like having the conversations ah, and particularly the world conversations, because there are these really fascinating tensions between idealism and realism and like forcing us to make trade-offs as part of uh, trying to do good in the world or trying to advance kind of the values that we believe in. And so this is, um, is an interesting case. And, you know, I, uh, I have to say that I don't, uh, I don't disagree um, in the sense that um, it seems to me that uh, some humans are, are irredeemable, uh, particularly fanatics and particularly religious fanatics in terms of getting them to redeem their worldview, <laughs> not their, maybe their general worth. Um, so I, 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 look, I disagree with them, but I don't, I maybe don't have the same view of them that you do. I mean, I don't like the Taliban agenda, but it's clear that they're not without support in Afghanistan, right? I mean, it, it, it's, not, it's not as if these people were parachuted into the country and don't have a social base. Uh, it's not a social base that I'm particularly enamored of and I wouldn't wanna live in that, but I don't think that we should fool ourselves that this is some tiny minority that that has absolutely no social support. Could they win an election? Maybe not, but they'd get they'd get a third of the vote, <laughs> right? Well, so this is interesting, right? And maybe this is a good uh, final point to discuss, and then we can wind down. Which is, um, so I agree. However, what I would the, the follow-up to that I would say is that I think 30% of voting Americans would love for a conservative Christian state to tell us whether or not we could criticize religion or criticize uh, anything. And um, so it's um, it's only to the sense of our, you know, institutions. <laughs> and uh, education and resources that even with those things, it's amazing the level of support that remains for a Christian version of what the Taliban would do from, a, from an Islam version to Afghanistan. So how long did the apartheid regime in South Africa last? 80 years? Seems right, yeah, I don't remember. Based, based on what? 12% of the population, 20%, I don't know, but a, a distinct and small minority who were largely behind the, the government, right? Yeah. You don't need a majority to sustain yourself in power yeah. once you get power, right? You don't, you don't need a majority. You need a committed group in society that's willing to staff your army and your security forces and you know follow your rules so i i 
I, I you're, you're right. I mean, I, I don't discount the anti-democratic elements in American politics. And here we've come around to American politics. Yeah, we made it. Uh, I don't discount that. I, 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 I worry about it. I think our institutions are much stronger in that they have, they're viewed as legitimate by many more people than is the case of the, say the current Afghan government. Uh, and that element of legitimacy, which is a really important concept, but really hard to measure is, uh, is what separates us. So yeah, there are plenty of people who think Joe Biden, you know, isn't the legitimate president of the United States or came to power through fraud. But there's still a vast majority who think, yeah, Joe Biden is the president. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, um, it was, um, so I don't think there's any question that our institutions are stronger. Uh, and, and, you know, to put it bluntly, our military still believes in our institutions. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right. Uh, at least the majority in most of the Well, the, the, the leaders, the officer corps. Well, the ones not named. Um, Michael <laughs> Michael Flynn, yeah. The one's not pledging their allegiance to a, a Twitter handle called Q. Um. <laughs> All right, Greg. Well, um, I, I like as the as the solution uh, withdrawing our friends. Um, yeah. And uh, all people who don't want to live under a Taliban regime, just saying, we got a lot of space here and yep. um, we could use some, uh, some more immigration and we'll help integrate you and... Uh, Come here, uh, and that might be the most straightforward answer. Actually, we could we could use them in Texas. Yep. And think about the think about think about the contributions of the Vietnamese community in Texas. Yeah. Who left Who left Who left Vietnam in 1975? Sometimes on rickety, you know, boats that were sinking in the South China Sea. Yeah. And look what and look what the Vietnamese community in Texas has become. I say, bring them all to Texas. Cheers to that. I don't have anything left. Oh no, you finished it. All right. <laughs> I've won I've won half so. All right. Well, Greg and I will be doing this um roughly monthly. It's as I mentioned earlier, June 25th. This is our first one. So we're walking our way through it. And uh thanks, Greg. It's always a pleasure. Nice seeing you, Justin. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>